Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lifted up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Leviticus. The Old Testament book of Leviticus. If you're looking for Leviticus, it is the third book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And as we're going through the life and ministry of Moses, we're putting our attention on the narratives, the stories, the uh, historical events that happened within Moses' life. On purpose, we are not going through the law, going through each, hundred, uh, each of the 613 laws and explaining that. That's a different series for some other time. However... Because it is a historical event of Moses being used of God to pen the book of Leviticus, we need to at least have an understanding or a survey of this book so that way we can know what the purpose of the book. Remember that each portion of the Word of God, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That means it's good for you. And so the book of Leviticus, believe it or not, is good for you. It's profitable to you. Now it also helps if you have at least an understanding of this book. So that way when you read it for yourself. You're not as lost. But you say okay I can kind of see what's going on here. Remember the book of Leviticus covers a lot of laws. And it covers a lot of offerings. The offerings are one of the big deals. Because you're like I have no clue what's going on. I don't have a Hebrew heritage. This was not part of my culture. I don't know any of this. And we're going to cover some of this. And we're going to answer the questions. And do a quick survey of the book of Leviticus. That not only will it help you to have a better understanding or overview of this book. But more importantly, it will show us how this book reveals God's character to us and shows us how we are supposed to respond to the revelation of God's character through the book of Leviticus. So at this time, if you wouldn't mind, to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Leviticus chapter number 1. The book of Leviticus chapter number 1, and notice with me in verse number 1. Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says this, And the Lord called Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark the word that we find in Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1? The tabernacle. The tabernacle. (laughs) And with this, we're going to give an overview of the book of... Of Leviticus, a survey of this entire book, the book of Leviticus. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you, we're just asking that you would just give us a grace, give us mercy, give us understanding that not only can we explain this book, but we would do it in such a way that people would like to look into it for themselves. And I'm asking that you would just create a hunger and thirst. Help us to have a desire to have a knowledge of your word. And again, I know that this is something beyond me. But it is something the Holy Spirit, who is the author of the Bible, because you wrote it, you could easily give us understanding of it. You could illuminate it. Because you wrote it, this is something that I know you'd be excited about. And so I'm asking that you would just help us to have that type of excitement, anticipation, that we would learn more about you. We know that there is a promise that if we seek you, that you would be found. So Lord, we come tonight, gather together to seek you and ask that we could learn more of you. Fill me with your precious spirit and you do your work tonight. And in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to do as we survey the book of Leviticus, the first thing I would like to cover is that God speaks from the tabernacle. God speaks from 
the tabernacle. If you don't mind, let's look and see the context of the book of Leviticus. Turn with me, if you don't mind, in the book of Exodus chapter number 40. This happens to be the last few verses within uh, Exodus, which is going to bring us to the context of the book of Leviticus. So in Exodus chapter 40, starting at verses 34 and 35, the Bible says this, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of, uh, glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And verse number 36, and when the cloud of the tabernacle was, or when the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the children of Israel uh, went onward on their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day it was taken up. <laughs> For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout their journeys. Now as we explain this passage, what we see is that after working on the tabernacle for nine months, finally the tabernacle is finished. Remember, we had talked about before about they get, that Moses gave the, was given the plans of the tabernacle after spending 40 days and 40 nights with God. Then we saw that there was an offering for the tabernacle. And the people gave, and they gave about equivalent of $1 million worth of supplies for the building of the tabernacle. Then God appointed a person to be spirit-filled, to put together, to construct the tabernacle, and to be ahead of its construction. And after nine months of working, the tabernacle is finally finished. Now, as the tabernacle was dedicated to the Lord on the first day of the first anniversary of the Exodus. So basically, remember they left Exodus or left Egypt during the Exodus. Now what happens is God had reset the calendar. One full year has passed since that time and now the tabernacle is being dedicated on that first day of the new year that God had set up. <laughs> and God speaks to Moses from this temporary dwelling place. What remember the whole purpose of the tabernacle is for God to dwell among his people. Remember that God is not a God afar off. So many people imagine that God is so far away. But God's desire has always been to be and have fellowship with man. Even today, God wants to dwell in what the New Testament calls the tabernacle of your heart. He wants to deal within you. God doesn't want to be a God who's far away from his people. But he wants to be intimate, close, and dwelling with his people. Now, while the Exodus, the book of Exodus covers three or 431 years, the book of Leviticus only covers one month. So God comes, puts his glory upon the tabernacle, and then for the next month, they're giving the book of Leviticus and it's being penned with these rules, these regulations, these things that are occurring in the book of Leviticus. But all that happens is it occurs in one month and it's still while they're encamped by Mount Sinai. <clears throat> now the purpose of the book of Leviticus is to set up the rules and standards for the new Hebrew nation. What they formed is a brand new nation and this is their new laws and regulations. In fact, in essence, it is their constitution. Now, we live in the United States of America. Our government is run by a constitution, a rule of law, supposedly. It's been a while since our nation has followed the constitution, but that was the whole goal of it, is that we're supposed to obey this written rule of law that governs our nation. This is the book of Leviticus for these people. It is their constitution. Now, because it is equivalent to a constitution for a specific nation, not all the laws of Leviticus apply to us. 
And this is where people confuse. Sometimes people teach, well, we got to learn the whole Bible, so you need to know all 613 laws, and you need to live by them. Well, that's not practical for us, because this is a constitution. You know, we have lots of laws in our land. For example, we have laws that deal with crime. For example, it is a felony to kill someone, right? And our rule of law, depending on the state that you live on, if you murdered someone with premeditation and it was a gross, horrible murder, you could receive a different sentence depending on where you're at. Wisconsin, as far as I know, does not have a death penalty, and so you would have life imprisonment. If you're in the great state of Texas, not only do they have executions, they have an express line to the executions. So you understand that um, depending on where you live at, they have different rules. So we know that because the book of Leviticus is going to be the rule of law for that nation, there are going to be certain laws that do not apply to us because those laws are for their setting up their government. For example, the United States government is set up quite different than Canada. In Canada, they have different rules. They're part of a commonwealth. They still have the queen as one of their recognized heads. So they have different rules up there. There are different rules of drinking, the age of drinking than they have in America. They have different rules of law, different ways of doing things. Mexico has a different rules than we do. Russia has different rules. Each nation has their own different rules to run. Leviticus is the rule of law for this brand new nation of Hebrew people that has just now formed. They have never had a nation before. Before they went into Egypt, there was only 70 of them. That's not enough to be a nation. But they came, they multiplied. Now there are two and a half million people. If you are going to govern two and a half million people, you need a set of laws to organize the people. Does that make sense? And so this is why we need to know the book of Leviticus, but this is why we don't apply all of those rules to us as Christians living in America. Because it's a different government rules. Now, that doesn't mean that we just ignore it. But through these laws God gives to his people, we can understand more of God's character and it is desire to be close to his people. Does that make sense? And so you can learn a lot. For example, if I go to someone's house and I learn about the rules that they have for their kids, I learn more about their household, right? If they say, guess what? There is no bedtime. You can come in at three o'clock in the morning and I don't need to know your friends. Well, that's the rules of their house, but we can learn more about the character who they have, right? In our house, it is a rule for our kids to read their Bible. Now, we want them to read their Bible by their own choice, but it's a rule. You can learn a little bit about our household and where we stand by our rules. Does that make sense? And so through the book of Leviticus, even though it is a bunch of rules and a bunch of laws that are set up for a different set of people, we can still learn about the character of God and who he is because of it. It is through the book of Leviticus that we understand God's holiness. This is going to be a key word that we're going to find in the book of Leviticus. We'll understand God's holiness and standards for living. We learn what God wants and we learn what God hates. That God is a God that changes not. And so the things that God desires are always going to be what he desires. The things that he hates or is abomination are always going to be an abomination. And so we can learn different things about God through these laws. Even though the laws may not apply to us as a government nation, we could still learn more about character of God and what he likes and what he doesn't like. And it is through this book we learn about holiness. We're going to define that in just a second. But Leviticus, you need to equivalent in your mind. Leviticus 
and holiness. Those two things need to put together in your mind. So therefore, if it's a book about holiness, it is an important book for us to study because we need to know about the holiness of God and holy living. The word holiness appears in Leviticus 87 times. And the word holy appears 65 times. That's a lot of times if you're not familiar with. That is a lot. And so what we have in this book is a book about holiness. Even though it is a book of laws for a nation that is not our own, we learn a lot about God, what he likes and what he doesn't like. We understand more about holiness and what God is looking for in holiness and holy living. The word holy carries the idea of whole, entire, perfect. Remember I spoke to you earlier about that today. That the word holy does carry the idea of perfect. It carries the idea of being complete, being whole. Not just being partial, not almost, but God wants us to be whole. God wants us to have everything he desires for us, not just part of it. And he wants us to have a full relationship with him and not miss out on everything that God desires for us to have. Now, the word holy also carries with the idea of being consecrated and set apart for God's use. And so with the word holy, it means that complete or whole, God wants us to have everything in our relationship with him that he desires for us to have. He doesn't want us to miss out on anything. But also the word holiness also means that we are consecrated and set apart for God's use. That we are usable by God because of our holy lives. The book of Hebrews, uh, <coughs> just a side thing, I just happen to be studying this for our Hebrew series in just a bit. But the Bible talks about, in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12, you don't have to turn there, but it says in verse number 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man should see the Lord. And in it, it's actually going to be talking about serving God. The only way that you could serve God is with a holy life. It says in verse number 15 of that same passage, it says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You will understand that when we serve God, we have an influence. And if we are not serving God with holy lives, what happens is that we influence people badly for the Lord. And that we have to, the only way that we could serve God, the only way that is, by the way, in that passage there, is talking about serving God acceptably. God doesn't accept all service, just like he doesn't accept all worship. The only way he accepts our service to him is if we are holy. So therefore, if the only way that God accepts our service is if we're holy, we need to know what God means. Not what I mean, not what some dictionary says. What does God mean Amen. about holiness? So the book of Leviticus is going to be vital if we're going to understand how to serve God acceptably. Remember, the book of Hebrews is the commentary on the book of Leviticus. So you need to understand this. If you're going to understand and apply Hebrew, the book of Hebrews properly, you have to have a working knowledge of Leviticus. Those two go hand in hand. Does that make sense? And so I would encourage you that if you're reading the Bible on your own, read the book of Leviticus and get through it. I understand that sometimes you're like, okay, I'm slogging through. But then go to the book of Hebrews and it will open up both of those books even more. If you read the book of Hebrews right after reading the book of Leviticus, Leviticus makes a lot more sense. Levitic, the book of Hebrews is the commentary on Leviticus through the filter and the light of Jesus Christ. So those two go hand in hand. They are companion books and they deal with holiness. So that's why I was referencing the book of Hebrews in that case, because it's the commentary. The only way that we could serve God acceptably is if we're holy. The book of Leviticus explains what does God mean about holiness. 
Now, as we continue with this, it is through this book that we can see two important questions answered. So the book of Leviticus answers two questions, two vitally important questions. The first question is, how can a sinful man approach a holy God? Remember, I told you earlier in talking about witnessing, is that God is perfect. Unfortunately, we're not perfect people. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So then, how can a sinful man, someone who is sinful, someone who's broken God's commandments, someone who's rebelled against God, how can we approach a perfect, holy God? Well, the book of Leviticus answers that question. The second question that is answered is, how can man live in communion with a holy God? The word communion has that word union. The word com carries the idea of communication. So the communication together, spending time together. How can man live in communion with a holy God? How is it that we could talk with God, that we could have fellowship? How can we be friends with a holy God? When we're like we are. Does that make sense? The book of Leviticus answers these two questions. So if you don't mind, let's take the first question first as the second point. First of all, we start with God speaks from the tabernacle. Let's cover this second point. How can sinful man approach a holy God? How can sinful man approach the holy God. Now, the first part of Leviticus answers this question. How can sinful man approach a holy God? Well, what we're going to find in the book of Leviticus, the very first things that are mentioned are the offerings. And each one of these offerings teach us how can a sinful man approach a holy God? The five offerings give us a complete view of the offering of Christ for our sin. Remember, the book of Hebrews gives us the commentary in Leviticus through the light of Jesus Christ. Well, when we apply that light to Leviticus and we're looking for Jesus Christ, these offerings show us a complete view of how we can approach a holy God. So first of all, in chapter 1, we have what is called the burnt offering. The burnt offering. And the burnt offering is a picture of redemption. What is redemption? It means to buy back, to purchase our price, that there was a debt that was owed and Jesus paid the price. We see this offering in the book of Leviticus. Let me just give you one verse. Uh, The whole chapter talks about the offering. I'm just going to pull a verse out. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And in this offering, this burnt offering, what we see is that when someone would come once a year, they would give this burnt offering. And as they went through the ritual, they would place their hand on whatever animal was going to be sacrificed. And it would be a picture that they were transferring their sins. Now it's a picture, it really wasn't transferring. But then that animal would die as a a sacrifice for our sins. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did, is that Jesus Christ bore in his body and was sacrificed for my sins and for your sins. The burnt offering is the picture of redemption that Jesus paid my price. He paid my price. So how can a sinful man approach a holy God? In chapter 1, we see the burnt offering, which is a picture of redemption. In chapter 2, we see the meal offering, which is a picture of propitiation. For those who've been in discipleship, you know what that word means, the propitiation. It means the appeasement of God's wrath. That means God is no longer angry because that sin has been sacrificed. So in chapter 2, we cover the meal 
offering. Here is a verse. Now all of chapter 2 covers this. But here is a verse that deals with the meal offering. In chapter 2 verse 2. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons the priest. And he shall take there out his handful of the flour thereof. And of the oil thereof. And all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it by the altar. To be an offering made by fire. Of a sweet savor unto the Lord. So in this meal offering. It was a voluntary offering. In devotion to God. Not with blood. But with grains. It was a gift to God. In thanksgiving for sin being forgiven. So every year people had to make a burnt offering. The meal offering was a voluntary offering, meaning that they weren't forced to do this every year. It was something they would choose to do every year. And it was an offering that says, you know what, I'm so thankful for what God has done for me. I'm so thankful that God has forgiven my sins. Now, in an additional offering of the drink offering was poured on top of this offering as a symbol of joy. And so, This is a voluntary offering. They would offer grains and it would be burnt up. But you could also put another offering on top of it just to say, I've got joy. I am so thankful. Look at the peace that I have with God. What a great God. I can have, uh, things are right between me and the Savior and I'm thankful for it. By the way, it would be good for Christians to be thankful for the peace that we have and to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Rejoice in the Lord because of what he's done. We have peace with God and God is no longer angry because of our sin. We have the meal offering. Now, we have the chapter 1 covers the burnt offering. Chapter 2 covers the meal offering. Chapter 3 covers the peace offering. The peace offering, which shows the picture of reconciliation. Again, those who've been through discipleship. Are you recognizing some of these words yet? These words don't go away. They are important to describe what Jesus Christ did for us. The word reconciliation means to bring two parties together in fellowship. That it's taken away whatever's keeping them apart and taking care of it. And now they both can come together In fellowship, in reconciliation. By the way, that's what Jesus Christ did for us. When he died for us and he died for our sins, he paid the price, he paid that wage, he fixed the wedge between us and God. Now we can have fellowship with God. We now have reconciliation. We can approach a holy God. Notice this verse in Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 1. And if his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be of male and female, he should offer it without blemish before the Lord. Again, this is talking about the peace offering. Now, the peace offering was followed up with a meal. So they would make this offering, but afterwards they would have a special meal. It was to show that we have peace with God because of the sacrifice that was made. We have reconciliation. We could sit down together. So let's imagine that there was two people fighting and they had something between us, maybe a debt or a bill that needed to be taken care of. Well, that bill is taken care of Now those two people don't have anything in between them and they could have fellowship again. They could spend time with each other. Well, the debt has been paid between us and God. We can now spend time with God. We no longer owe him a debt of sin. It's paid for. And so they would have this offering. Then they would have a meal together. You're not going to have a fun meal with someone that you hate, right? Hey, I really hate you. Let's go have some good fellowship over a meal. That'd be an uncomfortable meal, wouldn't it? This meal is supposed to say, I, I now have peace. We're having good fellowship together. There is reconciliation. It was enjoyed with friends to show that we could have fellowship with others because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So we as a church, because God has forgiven us and we have reconciliation with God, we can now have fellowship one with another because of who Jesus Christ is. Even looking at our congregation here, we have people of different ages, of different backgrounds from different places in the country, different uh, social economic things, different educational backgrounds, but we're all here together. Why? 
Because Jesus Christ has forgiven us. And we can have fellowship together. Because of the common thing of Jesus Christ. This is what that meal offering is showing. That we can have fellowship because of what Christ has done for us. It pictures the communion we can have with God through the work of the cross. Now there are three primary peace offerings. There was the thanksgiving. There was the wave. And there was a votive. Now all three of these are described in Leviticus chapter 7. Which wraps up the offerings. But each of these are still part of. Of this offering here. This peace offering. So the thanksgiving. The wave. The votive. Are all part of the peace offering. And these again are described. In the book of Leviticus. And chapter number 7. Good. So we've covered chapter 1. Has the burnt offering. Chapter 2 is the meal offering. Chapter 3 is the peace offering. Chapter 4 is the sin offering, which shows justification. Now, justification is God's looking at us after we've accepted Jesus as our Savior. That when he sees us, he sees God's, Jesus' record on our account. So instead of looking at our book of crimes, he looks at Jesus' spotless record. That... What happens is that Jesus, that God no longer sees us. It's not like we are sinners that are forgiven. It's just as if we had never sinned. That's how he sees us now. Just as if we had never sinned. We are justified with Christ. And chapter 4 is that picture of the sin offering. Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance of any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and shall do against any of them. Verse 3. If the priest that is anointed to do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he hath sinned, a young bullock without blemish, unto the Lord for a sin offering. Now, the sin offering dealt with two issues. It covered the necessity of forgiveness from unintentional sins and the cleansing from ceremonial uncleanliness. What does that mean? It means that there are plenty of times that we sin and we don't realize that we sinned. Maybe you're a new Christian. I didn't know that was a sin. I've been doing this the whole time. Doesn't that happen? Doesn't that sometimes you're not even paying attention and you sin and didn't even think about it? That happens. You say, maybe it has happened. I don't know. I haven't painted. Well, this offering covers those times where you don't even realize you sin. It was unintentional sin. I didn't know that was against God. I didn't know. And so this is able to cover that idea of anything you might have done and be right with God. Things done of ignorance. It was not to atone for sin, but to purify oneself to enter into the presence of God. So in a sense, it's like this, 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now, is 1 John 1, 9 dealing with lost people? No, it's dealing with saved people. People who have already been forgiven of God, but after that, we still have to be clean before we go in the presence of God. It's to make sure that we are thoroughly right as possible so we can commune with God. To make sure that we're clean before his presence. This is what this offering dealt with. Now, chapter 1 was the burnt offering. Chapter 2 was the meal offering. Chapter 3, the peace offering. Chapter 4, the sin offering. Then chapter 5 dealt with the trespass offering. And that dealt with regeneration. Another good Bible term. The word regeneration carries the idea of regened. That when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the Holy Spirit, who is God, comes to live inside of your heart. And you become a new creature. Behold, all things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. We're a new creature. Notice in chapter 5, verse 16. And he shall make amends for the harm that he had done in the holy thing, and shall add the fifth part thereto, and give it unto the priest, and the priest shall make an atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. Now, with this, the trespass offering dealt with not just the sin, but the damage 
it cost. Remember that when we sin, it's not just a sin that we do, but there's always consequences. You may tell a lie to someone, but it ends up hurting that person. There's damage done. You may steal from someone and say, ah, it's not going to be a big deal, but it does become a big deal. All sin affects someone, whether it's a little bit or not. All sin has consequences. And oftentimes they're further down the road than what you expect. It's, by the way, it's the only one of the offerings to deal with a monetary value. And this is interesting because here it was covered not only what it was cost to repay that was owed, but it placed a fifth or 20% to the damages. So let's say that, um, here's a, an example. Let's say that um, <laughs> there was an accident or because of my neglect, it caused someone some damages. Not only would I pay the damages, or pay for that sin, but I would pay an extra for the damages. Well, this is an offering here to God that we paid not only for the sins, but we also there was another uh, little bit put on top of it to remind me that sin has consequences and damages further down the road. And it was to put that reminder of it that my sin has more consequences than I realize. And this is what this dealt with. It was to picture that Jesus not only paid our price, but he also gave us much more in the relationship with the Lord. That when Jesus Christ died for us, he didn't just die for our sins. He died and made us co-heirs with Jesus. We now have an inheritance. We get so much more. In fact, I'm going to preach a message early next year on things that accompany salvation. That when you get saved, you just don't get salvation. You get so much more. There are things that accompany salvation. Oh, and it's a great list, too, of all the things that we get because we get salvation. Man, if you weren't happy about the salvation you have after listening to that message and you see all that list, you go, woohoo, look at all the benefits I get. Man, this is more than I thought I got. Man, this is a great bargain that we got when we accepted Christ. Look at everything that came along with it, the things that accompany salvation. Now, the book of Hebrews goes into detail how the sacrifices and offerings point to Jesus. We explained that earlier, that the companion book to the book of Leviticus is the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews explains all of this in detail and how they point to Jesus. Now, the second question we have is how can man live in communion with a holy God? Now, the first question is how can a sinful man approach God? Well, he could approach him because there was a sacrifice made on our behalf. And that Jesus was that sacrifice. He paid the price and it was good once and for all. And now we have a brand new relationship with the Father. We can have peace with God. We can have peace from God. We can have fellowship with God. But now is the next question. How can we have communion? How can we stay in fellowship? Meaning that now that you're saved... How can you stay in close fellowship with God, with a holy God? Well, that's a good question, and that's something for us, too. Now, it talks about the offerings from chapter 1 to chapter 7. Then it talks about the high priest, which, by the way, is Jesus. He's the mediator. He's the man that goes between God and man. And it's because that mediator we can approach God. Then at the end of Leviticus, it answers the question, how can sinful man... How can we go and have communion with a holy God? Well, let's look. If God is holy, first of all, if God is holy, then he fellowships with holy people. If God is holy, he fellowships with holy people. Now, let me give you a thing of science that is true. Like attracts like. What do I mean by that? People will find their own sort. Let me give you an example. We have camp. And when we turn camp loose, there's going to be a lot of kids who have never met each other before. And you know what will happen within a day or so? 
people who are like themselves will find others like themselves. So the happy people are going to go find the happy people. The spiritual people are going to go find out the spiritual people. The grumpy people, I don't know why I'm at camp, are going to go find those groups. Like attracts like. So the same thing approaches to God. That if God is holy, he fellowships with holy people. Because like attracts like. Now God can't change, so it's up to us to be holy so we could fellowship with God. Like attracts like. By the way, someone who is not holy will not enjoy fellowship with God. People who are not holy don't enjoy church. Not old-fashioned church. People who are not holy don't like seeing these boring old hymns. By the way, I never find these hymns boring. Oh, they have so much great truth in them. Like attracts like. By the way, did you know that there's some people who will not enjoy the millennial kingdom as much as others? There are going to be people that are not prepared for it. And they're not going to enjoy it. May I say there are some people that will not enjoy heaven as much? Hey, guess what we're going to do in the millennial kingdom? We're going to serve God. Well, somebody who doesn't want to serve God now, that doesn't sound fun at all. Does it make sense? Like attracts like. And so holy people can fellowship with a holy God. We have to go up to him. We have to be holy if we're going to fellowship with a holy God. Does that make sense? So the book of Leviticus covers this. Leviticus chapter 19 verses 1 and 2, a passage everyone's familiar with, I'm assuming. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The Bible repeats this later on in the book of Peter, Be ye holy, for I am holy. That in order to fellowship with a holy God, we must be holy people. So if God is holy, then he fellowships with holy people. We are to be holy because of God's character. He is holy. We are commanded to reflect God's character. We're commanded to be like him so we could fellowship. God didn't say be holy just because he's bored. He said, be holy for I am holy because he wants to fellowship with us. And that's the only way he could fellowship with us as if we are holy. <clears throat> so how do we become holy? That's a great question. How do we become holy? Now, by the way, the book of Leviticus at the end of it is covering these questions. I'm giving the summary of it. How do we become holy? The book of Leviticus chapter 20 verses 7 and 8. Sanctify yourselves therefore and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. And ye shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord that sanctifies you. That's some important verses. Let's uncover this. How do we become holy? Well, first of all, we have to sanctify ourselves. This means to separate ourselves for God for his use. We need to be separate. By the way, what are we separating ourselves from? Sin. We have to be separate from sin in order to fellowship with a perfect holy God. To separate ourselves so God can use us. Separate ourselves so he wants to be with us. We have to sanctify ourselves. The second part of that passage was to be obedient to God. Which he said, keep my statutes and do them. If you do not obey God, you are not a holy person. You say that's pretty blunt, but I have to be blunt. Plain speak is easily understood. So someone who says, I don't have to go to church. Well, you're not going to have fellowship with God, communion with God. Someone says, I don't have to read my Bible. Well, you're not going to be able to have fellowship with God. Well, I can, I can cheat on my wife. Well, you're not going to be able to fellowship with God. You know, you go through the list. We don't have to go call everything out. But you understand that if you won't obey God, if you won't do what he said, how are you going to fellowship with him? This is part of being holy. It's these two things. Sanctify yourself. Separate you from sin so you could be usable by God, so you could be, spend time with him, and be obedient to what he's told you to do. 
if you're not going to be obedient to him, he can't fellowship with you. Now, dealing with this more, we understand God is the one that sanctifies us. As we are obedient to the Lord, he changes us so we can fellowship with him. So notice this, it's our obedience. This is the key. As we obey God, he changes us. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy. Our job is not to say, I'm going to be holy. I'm going to be holy. Come on, be holy. My job is to obey him. As I obey him, he changes me. Now, in the Bible, there are three tenses of sanctification. In the English language, we have three tenses. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. And each of these tenses are mentioned in the Bible dealing with sanctification or our separation from sin. May I show you these really quick? The three tenses of sanctification. We are saved from the penalty of sin. That means the moment that we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are saved. That's in the past. At that point, action, and time, we are saved from the penalty of sin. We'll never owe God the debt of hell ever again. We never owe God the penalty. Sin no longer affects us in the penalty. Now, in the present tense, we are currently being saved from the power of sin. Meaning that we don't have to sin. As a Christian, you don't have to sin. You choose to sin. That's a powerful distinction. For those who are not saved, they can't help but to sin. Does it? But for us who are saved, we don't have to sin. And the more that we obey God, we'll desire to sin less and less and less. I wish we'd be perfect while we're in down here, but we're not. But we can be less and less involved in sin. But that only comes as we're following after Christ and being obedient to Him. It doesn't come any other way. And then, in the future, we will be saved from the presence of sin. That one day, I'm going to get a brand new redeemed body that will no longer be able to sin anymore. I'm looking forward to that time. I am tired of failing my Lord. I'm tired of sinning against my... You say you're the pastor. Oh yeah, if you knew me, you wouldn't want to fellowship with me anymore either. By the way, if we knew all your sins, we wouldn't... You understand? Yeah. I'm tired of failing God. Amen. I'm tired of sinning. But one day I'm going to get a brand new redeemed body and I'll never sin against God ever again. Oh, what a wonderful time that is. And these are the three things of sanctification. They deal with holiness. But again, how are we sanctified presently? By being obedient to God. And He changes us. This is the idea of fellowship. And as we're obedient to God, He sanctifies us. And we can have fellowship with God. We can spend time with God. Because holy God can only fellowship with holy people. Now, where does all of this talk about holiness come to? What is this all about? Why is this so important? Here is the big idea. Here is the one statement that we are to get across here. The idea of becoming holy is so we don't make God in our image. But we are transformed into what he desires us to be that we may have, might have fellowship with us. This is a big deal. If someone is not becoming holy, they now have to change the image of God so they feel like they're right with God. Does that make sense? If somebody doesn't want to obey God, if they want to keep their sin, you cannot keep your sin and be in the presence of a holy God. So therefore, you have to change who you think God is in order to feel good about yourself. Does that make sense? So the idea of holiness is vital so we don't change who God is. I cannot tell you the plethora of people who started off right, who had the right training, who were taught the right things, who were explained these things, but they had some sin they did not want to get rid of. So therefore, they changed their doctrine and it changed their standards and now they're further away from God. 
You know, it's amazing. Some people come to me. Well, preacher, I just don't think that you're right on this. And by the way, I don't mind when people point things out. However, where does their doctrine, their belief that's different than mine lead them? If somebody actually was living a more holy life and they said, you know what? I think you're wrong on this. I'd be more inclined to listen to them. But so often, well, I don't want to use this Bible, and I don't want to do this, and I don't like this songs. Well, preacher, if you put a band up here, and what happens with all of those people is they get further and further away from God. They're changing doctrine, they're changing things, and they get further away from God until they're no longer close to God at all. But they've had to change who God is in their mind. And it's changed everything. The holiness of God makes it so we go to God rather than us trying to force God to come to us. Does that make sense? This is why the teaching of holiness is so important. By the way, you define your terms. I could go to any church and say, God said, be ye holy as I am holy. And the whole congregation goes, woohoo! And then I describe holiness and define it. And they go, oh. You understand? It's the idea of defining our terms. What do we mean by this? means being separated unto God, being obedient to Him, being usable so we can fellowship with God. It is bringing us to the place where God is changing us instead of us trying to change God to fit our image. So the book of Leviticus, even though its laws and rules for government do not apply to us all the way, it is something that teaches us that we have a holy God. And that we have to be changed by him to fellowship with him. But that's what God desires. He wants us to be close to him. So with that being said, are you living a holy life? Are you living a life that's obedient to him? Have you allowed Jesus Christ to pay your price and to forgive you of all of your sins? Are you moving closer to God? Do you desire to have fellowship with God or are you satisfied with where you're at this is what the holiness of God brings up the question what is your relationship what is your fellowship with a living God thank you for listening to this audio message this is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins if you are saved I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord if there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you we encourage you look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com once again that's riverviewbc.com or if you would prefer to call us you can give us a call at area code 920 Five three zero six three zero eight. Once again, that number is nine two zero five three zero six three zero eight. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.